Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. We've made it to the weekend, and I'm just looking at my Twitter feed, and Bill Crystal is tweeting out that he's about to do this podcast, and he absolutely does not want to talk about Jeffrey Tubin and Jeffrey Tubin's extremely awkward return to, to CNN. So um, I'm going to have to do this on my own, Bill. Is that right? Yeah, that's fine, Charlie. And if you want to take 10, 15 minutes right now, give us your deep thoughts, ruminations, and reflections on that matter, I'll just be quiet here. All, all, I, all I can say is that uh, I always sort of keep a mental list of like things you can come back from and things you can't come back from. And I, I think I, I think probably this would have been on you know, the top of my list of if this ever happened to you, which, of course, is not possible. Um, would you be able to return to cable television at some point? I mean, you know, also make a list of the the most embarrassing things that y- you could possibly experience. See, I. I guess my take on this is if you did what Jeffrey Tubin did, I don't know how you'd go to the grocery store, much less go back on television. Okay, so I'm done with this. Um, hey, Bill, uh, thank you uh, so much for all of the, uh, the television recommendations. Oh. Uh, we have worked our way through Broadchurch, uh, Hinterlands, and Shetland. But I have to tell you, and I haven't, I haven't gotten to the French uh, police drama, but I have to tell you that I am totally immersed in this British police uh, uh, show called uh, The Line of Duty. Yeah, I is, have not, um, we have not looked um, at that yet, so that's – okay, I'll put that amazing. at the top of my list. Okay. It is amazing. The, the other night I was watching one of the season enders, and I, I actually you know, pressed pause on it. And to you know, go pour myself another drink and and to reflect on how incredibly good it was. <laughs> oh, great! Okay, that's really good. That's good but, to know. The but, only other one I really recommend is um, Scott and Bailey, which is uh, two yeah. women who are in charge of a you know detective uh, squad mm-hmm. in Manchester, and it's got uh, they're it's lively and a uh, little little more like Law and Order, a little less like a little less intense and than Hinterland or or Broadchurch, but you know, but good. No, um, uh, Line of Duty is very intense. I just have to warn people, it is extremely intense. It's at the far edge. So my, my wife doesn't watch that. She was able to take uh, the you know, Broadchurch, uh, Hinterland, and, and, and Shetland. But but I think that that crossed line. There's another actual um, uh, series that I've sort of dipped my toe into that I'm surprised. It's very, very unusual. It's called Vera. Yeah, about this so, well, so has read those books, um, mm-hmm. and we've seen a few of those. She's an interesting character, right? Oh, she's a, yeah, um, a total mess. Yeah. She, the, the, the detective is a completely dysfunctional woman who uh, is sort of fascinating because it is a little bit like watching a, a, a car crash. Okay, so where should we start this morning? We have Joe Biden in Europe, and uh, he's in he's in Britain, Charlie. So maybe he's watching. Right. He's like, I feel like he should be visiting the scenes, you know, visiting the places where these different crime dramas are set. That's what, if I were president, frankly, I'd be visiting, you know, where Hinterland is set, where Vera is set, where Shetland is set. But he, unfortunately, is just doing his job and meeting with other world leaders. You know, sort of get the, you know, getting getting himself in the, in the mode to meet with Vladimir Putin. And of course, this leads to all sorts of, of, of flashbacks to when uh, Donald Trump met with Vladimir Putin and sided with Putin over our intelligence agencies. Really, one of the extraordinary moments of the of the of the Trump presidency. And I see that I see that Trump has issued a um, a statement from Mar-a-Lago where he basically says he still trusts Vladimir Putin. I mean, it's like you know, the, nothing ever changes. Obviously, Donald Trump and his bromance with. Vladimir Putin hasn't changed. Yeah, I mean, it was uh, a gift to, to Biden in a sense because people like me were worried about and somewhat critical maybe of the decision to meet with Putin or at least worried about how that's going to go and it become it overshadows the rest of the trip, which would be a good 
story, I think, about alliance building and so forth. And if Biden's not tough enough with Putin, that's bad. And if Biden's very tough with Putin and they have a discordant meeting in a way, that's not great. Maybe I don't mind it, but it won't play well. So Trump has sort of taken Biden off the hook a little bit by reminding us uh, of how that appalling uh, day in Helsinki, which I mean, is a very low bar for Biden to to surpass. You know, I, I don't want to get into whataboutism. Um, I'm, I'm going to try to avoid this. But, uh, you know, earlier the week in, in the week, we had this uh, this uh, uh, controversy about the, the tweet by Elon Omar, where she appeared to be drawing a moral equivalency between Israel and Hamas, the United States and the Taliban. And, you know, that, that they've all committed crimes and everybody needs to be held accountable. And and what was interesting about it, of course, was that that uh, even Democrats push back uh, against against her comments that, look, uh, we, we have some we have some problems in our past. But to equate us with the Taliban um, is just uh, it, it, it's, it's not just offensive. It's historically inaccurate. And she has kind of walked back uh, that that moral equivalency. Yeah, I mean, your thoughts? No, I mean, it wasn't just some Democrats, but the leadership of the House, the entire leadership, issued a statement strongly, uh, not just disassociating themselves from uh, Ilhan Omar, but really criticizing her for what she had said. Now, you could could have been even stronger, I suppose. But so I, you know, I I think it it both reinforces the problem, uh, if I can put it that way, of the of the left wing of the Democratic Party. That that left wing exists. It's got some members in Congress. It's it sees a moral equivalence, apparently, or something like a moral equivalence, I would say, between what our soldiers do and what uh, Taliban uh, and Al Qaeda terrorists do, and what Israel does and what Hamas does. Having said that, it is a small slice right now of the Congressional Democratic Party. It's got right. some sympathizers who are in the kind of on the slightly bigger slice, I would say, or apologists maybe for that, rationalizers for that point of view. But again, what strikes me is that everyone repudiated it. Everyone in the mm-hmm. leadership on both sides, uh, in both houses on the Democratic side repudiated it. It doesn't obviously speak. I mean, she asked this, incidentally, this was a criticism of the Biden administration, if you think about it, right? She right. was asking a question to sure. Secretary of State Blinken. So she doesn't like the fact that the Democratic administration doesn't have her point of view. So I, you know, for me, at least, it, it's a reminder that there are, um, uh, there are sane and reasonable Democrats, and then they, they have a wing of their party they have to deal with, too. So let's put this in a little bit of context, because, you know, going back historically, this was one of the things that, that really offended, I think, in, in general, offended uh, conservatives, uh, Republicans about the, uh, the the folks on the left who might have engaged in moral equivalency between the United States and the Soviet Union, um, which is also one of the reasons why it was so profoundly offensive and shocking to hear this kind of moral equivalency from Donald Trump when it came to Vladimir Putin. This remain. Let me play a soundbite from his conversation with uh, with Bill O'Reilly. This still ranks as one of the most shocking moments of the of the Trump presidency. Let's play that. Do you respect Putin? I do respect him. Do you? Why? Well, I respect a lot of people, but that doesn't mean I'm going to get along with him. He's a leader of his country. Uh, I say it's better to get along with Russia than not. Will I get along with them? I have no idea. He's a killer, though. Putin's a killer. A lot of killers. You got a lot of killers. Why, you think our country's so innocent? (laughs) Bill, honestly, whatever you think of other presidents, no other president of the United States ever would have said something like that. No, and it did. It was interesting. That was that did. Some people broke from Trump at that point. Joe Walsh, who ended up running in 2020, would have been a Tea Party congressman. It had been not pro-Trump, but sort of a defender of Trump as the lesser of two evils. 
uh, really broke at that moment in Helsinki and, and people like Liz Cheney, who then still went along with Trump on other things for the next two years, were very strong in their criticism. So I think Helsinki was a moment, uh, I wish many, many, many more people had broken, uh, but it was a moment where one really saw the extent of Trump's total moral relativism and am- amorality, really, is the better way to put it, and total lack of appreciation for or belief in any kind of uh, ho- us holding ourselves to higher standards. It was a prelude in a way to the pardoning of the war criminals and so many other things that Trump did. Um, and, you yeah. know, again, I'd say the Democrats have an Ilhan Omar problem, but the Republicans have a Donald Trump problem. And one of them is the former president of the United States and the leader of that party. And Ilhan Omar is a fringe member of Congress. So let's talk about some of the things that we break breaking news here. The New York Times had this uh, kind of uh, blockbuster piece uh, drop last night or early this morning with four different bylines. So you know that it's important. And uh, this is the story that as the Justice Department investigated who was behind the leaks of classified information early in the Trump administration, it took a highly unusual step. Prosecutors subpoenaed Apple for data from the accounts of at least two Democrats on the House Intelligence Committee, aides and family uh, members, uh, aides and family members. One was a minor. All told, the records of at least a dozen people tied to the committee were seized in 2017 and early 2018, including those of Representative Adam Schiff of California, then the panel's top Democrat, and now its chairman, according to uh, committee officials. So your thoughts, we knew that the Justice Department was aggressive, but to go after members of Congress, wow, this is really quite a story, isn't it? Yeah, I think it is. And I I mean, this you'd have to really know details and who signed off on what, and do they get I guess there was no court approval for this, but uh, what was at least the notional justification? There would be internal, presumably, Justice Department documents. It's why it would be good to have either some form of really a look back into what Trump did. And maybe if the Biden administration doesn't want to do it itself, I can sort of see that. Uh, Looks like you're just, you know, going after your predecessor. But Congress should do something, or if not, maybe Congress should appoint uh, even if it's only the Democrats doing the appointing, a respected you know group of former judges and so forth with some Republican appointees on it to look at some key elements of Trump's abuse of law. I, d- I do think we need to have some clarity about this. I don't know that we want Merrick Garland ordering the Justice Department to look into you know what the previous administration did, but but there needs to be cooperation at least with some kind of independent effort, either from Congress or maybe better sort of uh, sanctioned by Congress. So it'll be sort of like the, the the January 6th commission, but but I don't know if Republicans would go along with it. But if not, uh, Democrats can appoint it or it could almost be appointed you know, informally. Or Garland, I suppose, as AG could say, hey, two former judges, why don't you lead an effort? I'm going to not involve myself in this and we're not going to have any politicization of it, but why don't you involve an effort to, uh, we'll cooperate with it in terms of making documents available as appropriate to find out what really happened. The other story that, that that really is 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 haunting is this deep dive by Reuters, an investigative report from Reuters that Trump inspired death threats or terrorizing election workers, that election officials and their families are living with threats of hanging, firing squads, torture, and bomb blasts. The campaign of fear sparked by Trump's voter fraud falsehoods threatens the U.S. electoral system. And it starts off with a story about the wife of uh, Brad Raffensperger, uh, the uh, Secretary of State in, in Georgia, and her name is Tricia. Late on the night of April 24th, 
by the way, keep in mind that date. This is April. This is long after the election is completely over and Joe Biden has been sworn in, etc. Late on the night of April 24th, the wife of Georgia's top election official got a chilling text message. You and your family will be killed very slowly. A week earlier, Trisha Raffensperger had received another anonymous text. We plan for the death of you and your family every day. That followed an April 5th text warning. A family member, the texter told her, was, quote, going to have a very unfortunate incident. And Reuters goes on, those messages, which have not been previously reported, illustrate the continuing barrage of threats and intimidation against election officials and their families months after former President Donald Trump's November election defeat. And, you know, how how this has created this this atmosphere in which people involved with the elections are looking over their shoulders. You know, look, every once in a while, I know I get some pushback. People say, you know, Charlie, uh, you and people like Bill Kristol and Tim Miller, you're being alarmist about the ongoing threat of political violence. But this is very, very real. And my sense is that it continues to build your thoughts. Well, I think your newsletter this morning was excellent on this. I mean, the, the these you know sort of intellect quote, quote intellectuals who cavalierly talk about the you know, they might have to use violence. People might have to use their 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 weapons because you know when the voting when when, when you lose faith in the electoral system, what's left? I mean, these cavalier comments by by various types on on various websites and in various magazines, you know, can produce real violence and have produced real violence in the past. And we're very familiar with this process of not just radicalization, but genuine, uh, you know, uh, I don't know what the, what the verb, what the equivalent of radicalization is, violentization or something of, yeah. uh, of people who are, you know, probably a little unstable or certainly excitable and so forth. So, yeah, no, I think people, have, we've all underestimated in a sense how much, unfortunately, kindling there was here in America for if people, for people to start throwing matches. But then the willingness to throw matches and the willingness to just, you know, do it cavalierly and irresponsibly without any seriousness about what might be the consequences. This whole Arizona thing, incidentally, is very yeah. dangerous and damaging. Very. Uh, and everyone's just, they're all just going, I mean, there are people who are flying out there to look at it and stuff, and then others who are just sort of sanctioning it, and then and most of the others who were just not saying a word about it, including the governor of Arizona. I was on a call yesterday, so I'm, he didn't say this, but I'm going to say this, with the, uh, I can't remember his title, the auditor, election commissioner, whatever he is, in Arizona, who got elected actually in November and took over and said, look, I've looked at this, and this was a fair election. Uh, he's a Republican, a, quite a strong Republican, quite a conservative Republican, and he um, and he's himself had some threats, incidentally, with his family and others have in Arizona. But but he said, um, but the degree to which they're sort of damaging any kind of faith in the system and laying the predicate for really a terrible path that the Republican Party is going to go down over the next, not just in Arizona, over the next two, three years. But again, it might be a little different if the governor of Arizona, the Republican governor of Arizona, who everyone knows is a decent guy and who certified the election and who isn't, uh, you know, okay. a, a Trump Doug acolyte, Doug Ducey, but he hasn't said a word. I mean, the cowardice of the establishment Republicans enables the incitement and including the incitement to violence of the extremist Republicans. Well, this is that whole, you know, argument, oh, let's just humor them. What, what, you know, what could possibly go wrong if you humor them? The, this Arizona story, I, I think, is interesting because 
on one level, it is a clown show. It is a joke. It is ridiculous. And I, I actually said this on, on, on television yesterday. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's not dangerous. And I've, I've used this line over and over again, so I apologize if, if, if you've heard me say it. But a clown with a flamethrower is still a, you know, still has a flamethrower. This is really dangerous because what's going to happen is the cyber ninjas will come out with some sort of a complete bullshit report. It'll come out in the middle of, of, of summer. It will then um, be amplified in this media ecosystem that, that we've, we've come to uh, understand. Uh, so the doom loop of crazy begins. And unfortunately, the people who ought to be pushing back uh, against it will probably, you know, continue to duck and, and cover. And the big lie will spread. And as far as as recently as yesterday, I think, uh, representatives of seven different state legislatures have visited this clown show, have gone to Arizona. So this is not going to be confined to Arizona. This will metastasize and it will feed this entire narrative that the election was stolen, that the uh, president was uh, is, is not legitimate, that the election needs to be decertified. And yeah, this is dangerous. And up until about five minutes ago, we understood how stuff like this would be fundamentally dangerous to American democracy. I mean, forget the impact on the Republican Party. Um, this this is an ongoing national problem, and it will feed this this climate of violence. And it will also feed efforts in state legislatures to say, you know what, we have to have the right as legislators to step in and overturn these fake election results that are being reported by uh, corrupt election commissioners and and so forth. And then the establishment Republicans will say, well, gee, that's maybe not so wise. Maybe I'll just go along. What damage could it do? Humor them for now. They're not really going to do it in November of 2024. No, I totally agree. We're in a very dangerous cycle here. And again, I, I, I'm happy to denounce God knows Trump and all of his uh, acolytes and supporters and, and the totally irresponsible pseudo-intellectuals who, who, who uh, encourage and promote these conspiracy theories and, and encourage violence. But they also the establishment Republicans who keep quiet deserve an awful lot of uh, blame here. Yeah, but it's now become it's become a way of life for them. You, you mentioned my newsletter, and this was something that I've been building up to for a while. But there's a publication called American Greatness, which I think fancies itself as the intellectual home of MAGA world. That it is, uh, uh, and you know, people, and, and unfortunately, there are a lot of pretty well known conservative writers who vote for it. I mean, who write for it. You know, De- Dennis Prager writes for it. Victor Davis Hanson, Roger Kimball, Josh Hammer uh, write for this. Uh, people like uh, Selena Zito. And it, it has become uh, more and more radicalized and continues to fetishize political violence. And, and I wrote about a piece by uh, Daniel uh, Galertner. Is, is that how you pronounce the name? Galertner, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Not to be confused with his father, David, which I did accidentally a couple of weeks ago. So I apologize for that. But Daniel writes this piece, Why I Need an AR-15. And I know that people, there are some people who say, you should ignore this. You shouldn't amplify it. I said, no, we need to understand that this is festering out there in the pseudo intellectual, uh, you know, wing of, of MAGA world and they're normalizing it. So he writes about why I need an AR-15 and he writes, the current administration in Washington, D.C. is not elected and is not legitimate. Now he's writing this in the context of AR-15. And then he goes on to say an AR-15 is not just a tool of last resort. It is a declaration that the last resort exists, a reminder that there are outer limits to the abuse of power. Now, I know that there are Second Amendment folks out there who believe that the Second Amendment is so that we can overthrow our government or we can fight back against government. 
I'm a supporter of the Second Amendment, but I've never understood exactly what the scenario was, how people were going to use those guns to fight, say, the U.S. Army, which has bigger guns and tanks and things like that. But this is the question, and I'm, I'm glad you, you brought it up because, the, you know, now you're seeing these, these megatypes who are specifically linking the threat of armed insurrection to the big lie about the election. And, you know, again, he's, he's denying the legitimacy of President Biden and the federal government. And the last resort that he's talking about is, is armed insurrection. And the AR-15s are not simply for show. So the question I ask is, okay, so um, if you bring this AR-15, who are you willing to shoot? Really, I mean, can we talk about this? I mean, unless unless this is just you know MAGA masturbation and uh, and you know dress up play, who'd you be willing to kill? Capitol police officers, Secret Service agents, members of the FBI, National Guardsmen, uh, election officials, uh, members of Congress, the Vice President, the President. You know, at some point, if you're going to play around with these ideas, people need to say, okay, specifically, what are you talking about when you bring that gun? Do you intend to use it, and who do you intend to use it against? No, absolutely. And also, what about you know? It's not as if there's never been. Uh, right-wing extremist sort of white supremacist terrorism in the last few years in the United States, often against uh, just, you know, uh, Latinos at a, at a, what, department store, I think it was, in, in El Paso, Texas, and so forth. So, um, you know, it's not as if this never is such so fanciful that we're not allowed to worry about it, quite the contrary. So, And then, of course, I'm not even, we're not even mentioning January 6th, really. So, I mean, it is after January 6th, people thought, I guess I even thought, okay, there'll be some retreat from the era responsibility they have they are more responsible today than they were before january 6th i mean what does that say though about the current state of uh trumpism and, and to some degree of a large chunk some chunk of american conservatism in the republican party well let's also talk about uh, those of us who are politically homeless who have been politically homeless and there's been a lot of talk about the red dog democrats uh how, how do you by the way how do you describe yourself do you describe yourself as a as a red dog do you describe yourself as a biden democrat what where where are you coming down i right think now? i was on i was on tv yesterday and i, I think yeah. i got slightly I, I sort of said biden democrat and i think maybe Jim yeah. tapper said i can't remember if this was on tv or off the air but he said aren't you a biden republican and i said yeah i'm biden republican but i'm a biden democrat because sometimes because in virginia for example I'm so disgusted by the Virginia Republicans all catering to Trump, to say the least, in their in their gubernatorial campaigns, that I voted in the Democratic primary on Tuesday for Terry McAuliffe, who's a moderate Democrat, who's a pretty good governor, and who won easily. So I feel like, you know, okay, we can I can certainly live with that. So I don't quite know what I am, but um, I, I hope Biden is a successful president. And I've got to say, you look at, you know, again, Ilhan Omar is the argument against quote, joining the Democratic Party. So they're crazy and they're going to go more in that direction. But the repudiation of Ilan Omar is the argument that, you know, we can live with at least the mainstream of the Democratic Party for now. And the failure to repudiate Donald Trump is the evidence that you can't live with the mainstream of the Republican Party for now. Yeah, the, the problem, of course, with that is, I mean, there, there's two problems. Number one, that I'm not sure the Democrats really want us. <laughs> you know, well, that's you, fine. I mean, yeah, of course, yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. You know, because we, we of I'm course, a- come from from the you know swamp of pure evil and, you know, we, there, there's, there's no redemption whatsoever. And then, of course, there are the folks who say that you can't possibly make common cause because this administration is so left wing. So can I play you uh, my, my good friend, Ron John, uh, the senior senator from the state of Wisconsin? Who was on with what was he on with uh, with, with Sean Hannity? Meaning of great great minds and uh, l- listen to how he describes the Biden administration. The sort of the word salad he uses. Ron John from last night. Uh, why is he Why is he granting these waivers to countries that are not particularly friendly? They're hostile towards us, 
and meanwhile taking away American jobs simultaneously? Because he's weak. And you know, don't ask me to get inside the mind of a liberal progressive socialist Marxist like uh, President Biden. But what I do know is he is this is self-inflicted. OK, so um, was liberal progressive socialist Marxist like Joe Biden? Hmm. That's that, there's a lot going on there. There's a lot of political theory being thrown around there, Bill. Yeah, I don't know that that little that faction. I'm not, I, I once knew a little bit about these different Marxist factions from the 30s and 40s, and they each had their own little. You know, there were the Trotskyites and the Stalinists, Trotsky, and there were yeah. sub factions and other factions, democratic socialists, of course, and undemocratic socialists. But yeah, I wasn't aware of that. That Joe Biden, when he joined the liberal, progressive, socialist, Marxist faction uh, at the University of Delaware or, or Syracuse Law School or when he was a senator beginning in 1972 and, you know, being a mainstream Democrat and supporting the crime bill in 1994 and and so forth. Uh, I mean, yeah, well, what can you even it, say? It's just, it's well, just, it's sort of, it's it's sort just, of, it's yeah. just, as you say, throwing, you know, words that have been, that he, that Ron Johnson has the sense are, un, are unpopular. And look, what it really does, though, is it, it you get it all in one ridiculous phrase, but it, it makes liberal and Marxist us just on a very, you know, uh, next to each other, puts them next to each other, so to speak. And it means that, you know, you can't so say, look, there's a respectable liberal point of view that we want to, as part of the American political spectrum. There's a progressive point of view that I'm less fond of, but that, it, you know, they get to they get to make their case too. Uh, then there's socialists who are not much part of the American political spectrum. Some of them could be decent people and some and some not, some, uh, some democratic, some not. And then Marxists, a few could be decent, but that's a pretty bad uh, political <laughs> philosophy and ideology. But no, you can't make any of these normal distinctions that people have made for a century and it's all just lumped together. Well, words actually used to mean things. This right. is this is the thing that 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 is, it's, it's hard to sort of you know catch up with is that you know Marxism used to represent a specific ideology. I mean, there were there were lots of different iterations of it, but it was a thing. And now it's just sort of just thrown together like Mad Libs. I mean, it's you listen to some of this, it's just like you just throw it in, you just Marxist, you know, Black Lives Matter, throw in the word Marxist, uh, critical race theory. So that we're, we're throwing around these terms that if, if anybody was slow, if you slowed them down and said, okay, could you define uh, Senator Johnson, what does Marxist mean? And can you identify a specifically Marxist policy that Joe Biden is advancing? Let's let's have that that discussion. Or when people talk, I, I think yesterday somebody was doing a count. Fox News, by the time that I went to bed, I think, which is was relatively early, of course, um, had had mentioned critical race theory more than thirty times. I wonder what percentage of the listeners and hosts and commentators could actually define what critical race theory means, except that these words are sort of just thrown in as substitutes for bad thing, something I don't like. Now, by the way, you know, this, this happens on, on, you know, on, on liberal media as well, things are thrown in, but, but the term Marxist, you know, li liberal progressive socialist Marxist, I mean, it's just sort of like this spew of here's I'm just going to throw out all the bad words that I can possibly think of, and I know that I'm not going to be challenged on it. Yeah, no, it's it's terrible. I mean, critical race theory. You've written about this. I mean, there's yeah. I'm, I don't like critical, what I understand to be you know the kind of the intellectual core of critical race theory. I don't like and I don't agree with. On the other hand, it's been used so indiscriminately by the right. Uh, now we have legislation banning its teaching that it also would seem to ban 
you know, having an honest account of what happened in Tulsa a hundred years ago, or having a serious yes. discussion about slavery and its implications or reconstruction and what happened or the Klan in the twenties or, or segregation in the fifties and sixties or continuing discrimination at times today. So the whole, you know, uh, it's become impossible. It, it's so dumbed down the right and the conservatives and, uh, in ways that conservatives played a very constructive role in actually distinguishing between, okay, let's end segregation and end discrimination, but let's not become a racially, uh, let's not heighten racial sensitivities and identity unnecessarily and, and in a way that's going to be divisive. That was once a sort of standard conservative talking point, and I think uh, one in good faith. Uh, now it's very hard to make that argument. Okay, earlier this week, uh, former Congresswoman Barbara Comstock uh, had an op-ed piece in the New York Times where she called on other Republicans, stop cowering before this guy. Uh, she's spoken out against uh, Trump in, in the past, but it was it was a very, very strong piece, and I know that you had some thoughts about it. Is there any, do you sense any movement, any possible green shoots of people who are going, okay, so you know, we're hearing voices like, you know, we've heard Adam Kinzinger. We're hearing Barbara Comstock. We're hearing Denver Riggleman. And these are former congressmen. Uh, you know, is there any appetite for the kinds of things that Barbara Comstock was talking about? I mean, I think there might be, and I think yeah, there are some, as you say, green shoots, and I'll come back to that in a second, but I would just, I think I said this on, on, on Ryan Williams maybe Wednesday night. Uh, Barbara Comstock uh, uh, wrote her op-ed the same day, Elise Stefanik went to Mar-a-Lago to, to bend yeah. the knee. And of course, Elise Stefanik and Barbara Comstock were colleagues in Congress and often, and were rather similar, I'd say, in the sense that they were more moderate Republicans from Bar uh, Barbara's from my district here in Northern Virginia, Elise is from uh, upstate New York. Uh, they didn't always vote in lockstep with Trump. They had their problems with Trump in 2017, 2018. Uh, then before that had been for a more forward-looking Republican party that was a reformist party and so forth. Uh, and um, one of them went one way and one the other, and one of them uh, distanced herself from Trump, it wasn't quite willing to break. That was Barbara. I mean, wasn't willing to say she wouldn't, I don't know, vote for McCarthy for leader or something. And Repub in our district, people just wanted a Democratic House to check Trump. And so she lost. It was not a reflection on her. She's well-liked and respected. Uh, Lise went the other way, uh, became a favorite of Trump world, and now she's number three in the House. That sort of says it all for me, you know. Um, you know, people, uh, Barbara was ahead of Elise in seniority and stature five, six, seven, eight years ago, and, and now she's out of the house and Elise is number three, which does bring us to Liz Cheney, the person Elise uh, Stefanik replaced as number three. I mean, she is the one person, I really think, who's in office, is fighting, didn't leave, didn't lose, didn't either leave like Flake and Corker mm -hmm. or lose like Barbara and others. Um, it's not the only one, but she's the main one, certainly the most prominent one who has, she's staying a Republican. She's, she is genuinely conservative more than either Comstock or Stefanik right. um, on policy. And she's going to fight her primary in Wyoming, it appears, and and fight if she re gets reelected, uh, renominated and reelected, fight in the House for the future and maybe in 2024 at, at the presidential level for the future of the Republican Party. I think right now she would be the first to acknowledge she's in a minority in the party as a whole. But, uh, you know, having someone of her stature and intelligence and political savvy fight makes a pretty big difference. For me, that's the big change from six months ago. 
So, uh, do you have any strong feelings about uh, the the infrastructure package and the and the compromise? We're we're getting this report uh, last night that ten Senate Democrats and Republicans say they've reached a five year, nearly one trillion dollar infrastructure deal. Uh, we don't know whether they actually have the votes. We don't know whether that could break a a, 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 a filibuster. But 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 your your sense on. The, the the Biden administration's efforts to get some kind of an infrastructure should should I mean I guess should more directly should Joe Biden accept you know half a loaf should he accept one trillion dollars if it's got a lot of new spending if he could get a handful of Republican votes would that be worth it I mean I think it would without knowing frankly yeah. a heck of a lot about the details and about which programs will work and which won't which I mean that feels like such of course a a conversation that one used to have 10 or 20 years ago. Well, can we actually look at this bill? Is this thing, are bridges necessary or are highways necessary? Or I mean, but of course, getting into actual, I don't even mean the weeds. I mean, even the outlines of public policy is so beyond our public debate these days, which is just slap a number and then someone else says, I have a different number and that number looks too small or too big or something. It's yeah. like childish, frankly, but whatever. But anyway, I think it would be good for the country to have some pieces of legislation passed with somewhat bipartisan majorities. I just think that would be healthy for the country. I think it would be good politically for the Biden administration. And yes, I would recommend to Joe Biden that if he could get a police reform bill, which I think they seem pretty close mm-hmm. on with some mm-hmm. with some Republican support, and an infrastructure bill, he can come back and if he holds in 2022 or if he holds Congress in 2023, or if he doesn't hold Congress, he can try in 2023. Uh, you know, get some, some things in bipartisan support will help him. It'll take the edge off the arguments that it's a, you know, just a left-wing Democratic uh, administration shoving everything through. And uh, so, I, yeah, I'd be for taking what you can. It is interesting that there are, in fact, five Democrats and five Republicans who've been working together. You know, we keep wondering whether there's sort of a centrist, you know, heart in in the United States Senate. And then the names are interesting. You know, Bill Cassidy, Republican from Louisiana who voted um, to convict uh, Trump, Susan Collins, Joe Manchin, Lisa Murkowski, Rob Portman, Mitt Romney. Jean Shaheen from a Democrat from New Hampshire, Kirsten Cinema from uh, Arizona, John Tester, Democrat of Montana, Mark Warner, Democrat of Virginia. And apparently this deal calls for about $974 billion in infrastructure spending over five years, which comes to about $1.2 trillion when you uh, extrapolate that over eight years. And it would include about $579 billion in new spending. So this, you know, my initial gut reaction without knowing all the details is this seems like a really good faith effort. You're moving closer to the number that I think the Biden folks really want. I think they want to have that that $1 trillion number, which, as I've said several times, um, out here in the real world is still a big number. <laughs> it's still a lot of money. I'm sorry if people say, no, there's no way that we can give up. We, guys, a trillion dollars, this is a lot of money. And we've already spent a lot of money. So it feels like we're getting close to it if both sides actually want to get it done. And of course, that's the big question. And, you know, the Republicans you mentioned, so four of the five, if I'm not mistaken, voted for conviction on, on yeah. uh, impeachment in, in February. And Rob Portman is retiring. And and, uh, right. and he also voted for, the I think, the, the January 6th commission. Mm-hmm. I mean, of course, there shouldn't be really, there needn't be a correlation between what you, th- how much money you think should be spent on infrastructure programs, and whether you voted to convict Donald Trump, no. uh, but but it it is a sign that if you're not in the camp that was willing to break with Trump, which is basically seven or eight senators at this point, uh, it's not clear that you're willing to do anything with the Biden administration. And that's right. a good. T- I mean, 
I mean, I guess Mitch McConnell has, you know, played Lucy in the football so often that one even hesitates to say this, but, you know, it would be good for the country if Mitch McConnell said, you know what, this is a reasonable deal. I've made deals in the past. This one I'm going to be for. And, you know, and yeah. that doesn't mean he has to be for all the stuff he hates. And, you know, he can continue to, Ron Johnson, he can let Ron Johnson denounce the Biden administration as progressive, was a liberal progressive socialist Marxist. Liberal progressive socialist Marxist. It would be nice if not, if not McConnell himself, maybe some other responsible Republicans. I mean, again, the silences of the establishment Republicans, the Shelbys and the Blunts and the Grassleys and all these characters uh, is pretty, uh, pretty astonishing. See, I think that that you're drawing the line between the the vote on the impeachment and this is 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 really valid because I think that what we found was there were at least seven Republican members of the Senate that were willing to be independent, were willing to break with their party in a very fundamental way, and so that that's a signal that that they're kind of in play mm. on every issue. So. If, in fact, at the end of the day, the Biden administration does not get any of them to to support their major legislative initiatives, I think that's a failure because clearly you have people who are willing to go out on their own and take some political risk, even if they know that it antagonizes the Republican base. I mean, we that vote was really a defining vote for them, right? Saying, mm-hmm. okay, I am willing to do something completely different. Okay, so um, I'm hearing some word on the street about secret dinners that you've been engaging in. I know that uh, the Red Dog Democrats do not actually, in fact, get invited to Georgetown cocktail parties, but I, I, I there was some Bill Crystal, Tim Miller sighting in D.C. over the week? Yeah, Tim was in town for a couple of days, and that's, of course, it was, uh, yeah. exciting to see people that one used to see quite often when one used to travel routinely. And But, uh, of course, these days, that's not been the case for quite a while. So he showed up in D.C., our, our colleague Tim Miller, for the first time in, I think, 15 months. And we went out to dinner, yeah. which is something I've now done about four times, but it's still getting back in the knack of that. Uh, with Tim and with um, Alex and Rachel Vindman. Alex Vindman famously testified and, uh, and told the truth in 2019. Patriot, about yeah. Ukraine, mm-hmm. total patriot. And uh, uh, we'd all got to know each other slightly in that episode. Uh, none of us said, I think, uh, Tim and neither Tim nor I had met the Vindmans before that. And so Susan and I and Tim and, and Rachel and Alex uh, had a very pleasant dinner. I think there's a photo of Tim and the Vindmans on, uh, yeah, on uh, up on Twitter and maybe online. Of course, you know, Susan and I had to, you know, we, we, we stay in the background just to make the conspiracy look, you know, even vaster and more, well, I assume, more I mysterious, you, you know, and we, we did you, did you take that picture? I think we, Susan, you, you yeah, Susan took that picture. Okay. Right. So, and, um, anyway, it was a very pleasant dinner and, you know, but again, the degree to which we've normalized everything, as you say, Alex Finman, true patriot, not a single person has, has, even alleged credibly that he didn't say anything that was utterly true and that he did it under oath and was asked to testify by Congress and had served the country and her served the Trump National Security Council, despite I'm sure not having a high opinion of Donald Trump because he thought it was the right thing to do for the country. And it, his, his bosses uh, uh, had th- thought well of him in terms of, you know, his actual work product on, on, on Russia and Ukraine and the issues he was working on, uh, detailed over from the Army to the NSC. So again, n- n- no legitimate criticism of it uh, at all. He gets denounced, call a traitor. Remember this? On, on, I know, on I've Fox, seen this. On Fox yeah. News, they get, of course, death threats and so forth. Really disgusting. You know, it's interesting. Liz Cheney, I remember this at the time, though she was going to vote to not to impeach Trump, which disappointed me, uh, on Ukraine. Remember, she defended 
uh, Alex she Newman did. against some of the really disgusting attacks by some of her colleagues in the House that, of course, Fox News and all those characters. So it was, but again, that's sort of skated by and, you know, no one has apologized to him. Kevin McCarthy hasn't said, said you know, in the heat of the battle there, we said some things that we regret, but we respect people who served in the military and served our country. And But no, of course not. No, no apology, no acknowledgement that they uh, of how terribly they behaved under Trump. But of course, they can't do that. They don't want to do that because they're still behaving terribly by accommodating Trump. Well, and also this is another indication of how we live in this upside down world where you have somebody who has devoted his life to serving his country, who was a patriot, who felt that, he, that his obligation to his country meant that he needed to tell the truth to, uh, to, to Congress. And yet in the minds of so many people, th- that becomes an act of treason. And Rachel Vindman has a very active Twitter account where she, you know, if you follow the kind of the response you get, there's still people out there. Who, who think that, that any criticism of Donald Trump himself constitutes treason, which, again, uh, Bill, words used to actually mean things. And we used to we used to understand that putting country ahead of the political ambitions of one person was one of the highest forms of patriotism. And and, and all of that's turned on his head these days. Yeah. I mean, Vindman, I, I think Colonel Vindman, I, I never, I'm not sure he even met, had met Trump maybe more than once or twice. He certainly he didn't testify. He testified as to what had happened, what he had seen happen in the National Security Council with Sondland and all that sort of thing. Uh, he didn't attack Donald Trump. He didn't, uh, you know, uh, say, oh, it's terrible that Trump uh, told me this because Trump hadn't told Vindman this. He reported what he saw in the White House. When you're when you're summoned to testify under oath by Congress you're sp- about a controversial, questionable set of actions, you're supposed to tell the truth. That's what he did. And that's what the Trump people couldn't stand. Bill Crystal, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. We always appreciate it. My pleasure, Charlie. And thank you all for listening to this weekend's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back on Monday and we'll do this all over again. <laughs>